We are in Mark. Got it right today. And we're going to do verses 11 through 21, which are, it's really, it's two connected stories. Um, so instead of stretching this out like I normally do, I shortened it up a bit. <laughs> a smidge. It's progress. Uh, and the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek signs? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. He cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Uh, Help us to know the riches of your grace and your wisdom. Uh, Help us to believe what you say to us. Help us to do what you tell us to do, building our house upon the rock that is Christ himself. And so use this time, use these words to accomplish your great purposes in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. As uh, most of you are aware by now, I am a guitar geek. I love guitar-oriented music, uh, particularly from the late 60s, early 70s. And there's one guy that many of you probably haven't heard of by the name of Robin Trower. And his great claim to fame is the album and song, Bridge of Sighs, an instrumental piece. Well, sometimes I think I live in the house of sighs. Uh, You see, I mean, sighs like, that kind of sigh, not sighs, big, small, that kind of stuff. Because I have three teenagers, And so this means that when my wife and I ask them to do something, there's often a heavy sigh. And then as we get exasperated by the prevalence of sighs in the house, we too begin to sigh, which is why I think I live in the house of sighs. Uh, I'm not going to put this over the, you know, over the door, enter ye the house of sighs, but there's a lot of sighing and groaning going on in the household these days for a lot of reasons. And in this section of scripture, we see Jesus groaning or sighing a lot. And he does it again today. Uh, And we're going to 
spend some time thinking about why he's doing this, uh, why he's sighing in the first place. So let's begin with the question, is Jesus able to engage in meaningful ministry in Dal Manutha? So let's uh, bring our map back up so that we remember what we're talking about. And uh, this is, there's the context here. of uh, the, After the feeding of the, the 4,000 uh, by the Decapolis, they got in the boat, they went across the sea, and they went to this place called Dalmanthana. And uh, we believe it's by Magdala. And that's where this story begins. Okay? East side of the Sea of Galilee. But Mark makes no mention whatsoever of any ministry that takes place. Instead, what he says is, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. One of those proverbs that has just been rallying around in my mind for the last couple of years, um, the first part of it is, hatred stirs up strife. And so what happens here is the Pharisees come immediately hearing that Jesus is there and they're stirring up strife. They begin to argue with him. They resume the argument that they'd already been having with him. It's almost like they just picked up where they left off. No hello, how are you doing? How is it on the other side of the, of the, of the sea? Just right into it is at least the impression that Mark gives us. There's no repentance for what Jesus had called them to account to in the past. There's no humility on their part. It's just they're going back for the throat. And what we need to keep in mind as we wrestle with this is that they had different understandings of grace. They had different understanding of what salvation was. They had a different understanding of what holiness was in terms of how to define it, how to identify it, these sorts of things. And they had talked about it in terms of these human traditions, Okay. And so they had criticized Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands before eating. Now, that was something that was part of the tradition of the elders. It was not part of the law of God. And so Jesus reminds them about why, why or asks them, why do they set aside the commands of God for the traditions of men? And that is the conflict that these guys are kind of getting back into in all of this. In the midst of this argument, we see that they are seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. We don't know the exact words they used, but they want a sign. Your teaching is different than our teaching. Therefore, provide some sort of, of sign to indicate to us why we should listen to you. Why should we leave our teaching for your teaching is really uh, the implication that is going on here. Now, what's interesting to weird people like me, uh, is that Mark tends to use the word for power when he speaks of the miracles of Jesus. And so it's, it's about Jesus working power or miracles, okay? But the word they use is sign, which doesn't necessarily have to be the working of power or working of miracle. They, they're looking for something to authenticate the message of Jesus, uh, something that says that, yes, indeed, Jesus has authority to teach, and we should listen to his message. And so uh, they're looking for this. Because thus far, they have rejected Jesus' teaching as different than their own. 
and it was. Uh, They've also refused to see the many miracles that Jesus has performed that have authenticated that very message. So what's going on here? What are they looking for? And it could be one of two things. And and one of them, excuse me, has to do with Exodus 19. And it's really interesting. uh, I hadn't thought of this until... I read Exodus 19 on Friday, and in verse 9 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. And so when God descends to, to Mount Sinai, because this is, this is part of the whole giving of the law in, the, in Exodus 20, this is the setup for that. Uh, they're going to see the, the, the fire like a furnace. They're going to see the, th- the, the, the lightning. They're going to hear the thunder. They're going to feel the earthquake. They're going to be unmistakable signs from heaven that God is speaking to Moses. They're going to hear this loud sound like a trumpet, and, and they're going to respond to that, and they're going to believe Moses. That's probably what the Pharisees are looking for. The, the special effects show from, from heaven that indicates clearly to them a gigantic neon sign, in a sense, saying, this is the guy, this is the guy, listen to him. He is the prophet like Moses that is spoken of in Deuteronomy. But there's another place in Deuteronomy. And this may have been more what they were getting at because of their... Um, They're not coming, again, with humility, seeking to understand. Uh, They're coming in anger, seeking to judge. And so it's more likely that they're thinking about Deuteronomy 13. And the first five verses talk about what happens when uh, someone comes, a a prophet comes with a message and signs that uh, seem to authenticate it, but the difference is uh, that prophet is calling you to worship a different God. And so that seems to be what the Pharisees have in mind, that Jesus is coming, and he's popular, and he's trying to lead people astray. That's their perspective on Jesus, that he's coming to uh, lead them to worship a false god, and therefore Jesus must be eliminated, which is what Deuteronomy 13 talks about. That person was to be removed from the community, was to be cut off from the community and possibly put to death. And so this is, I believe, in part, Mark's way of expressing this idea that they're looking to kill Jesus. So it's in light of that that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. This is a, the side deeply is the only time this particular word is used, but it is a cognate of the word that we find for sigh or groan in chapter 7, verse 34. In other words, it's related to that word, but it's slightly different from that word, but you still get the thing. I'm sure he was shaking his head. If he was... Captain Picard, it'd be a double facepalm at this point. Now, 
It's interesting when you read the commentators. Some, some think that he's gathering strength for a reply. I'm not really sure about why they would think that. I think it's maybe because we struggle with the humanity of Jesus. Okay? Jesus, though perfect um, and never sins, uh, was fully human. And so, as fully human, he can be exasperated, like many a parent gets exasperated, and like many a child sometimes gets exasperated with uh, overly strict parents. I believe from the context, not just because I want to, but I believe from the context that he is exasperated by this latest expression of their unbelief. It's like, what more do I have to do for you guys to believe? Now, Jesus has not forgotten his theology, okay, about human depravity, but still, it's exasperating. You, as parents, understand your children, depraved, as we sometimes joke, vipers in diapers, and even... (laughs) And even after they're out of the diapers, they're still vipers, okay? Uh, you know, they don't grow out of sin. They may mature in some ways, but sin is a problem that is not cured by growing up. And so parents are sinners too, just so you kids know. Your parents also fail. Jesus knows this, but he's still exasperated by this unbelief that is present. And so he says, why does this generation seek a sign? And then he takes that oath, essentially saying, they ain't going to get one. Not happening. But he's frustrated that they keep wanting sign after sign. They're resisting this teacher who performs miracles. You've got to keep that in mind as he, as he speaks about this. There's a sense in which they want no part of his kingdom. No part of the kingdom he's proclaiming to them. And as a result, uh, this profound unbelief is wearisome. And it's something that Paul experienced too. Because he started with the Jews first and then went to the Gentiles. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And so, you know, different cultures looking for different things. And it's, it's like the, the Jews that Jesus, de- uh, sorry, that Paul dealt with are just like the Jews that Jesus dealt with and they kept wanting signs. And Paul would get frustrated at points. But we see in Hebrews 2, for instance, that while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There were signs. There were abundant signs. It's unbelief that fails to recognize the signs that are present. And so when we think of the Pharisees and Judas, we'll toss Judas in there, okay, Their unbelief keeps them from entering and enjoying salvation and communion with Jesus. There's a high price that's paid for their unbelief. And so we see that unbelief wearies Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? When I say that, I'm talking about Jesus in his role, the eternal Son in his role as Messiah as the incarnate God-man. So, 
second question sort of comes up. That's answered uh, in verses 14 through 17, I think. Is unbelief limited to the Pharisees? In other words, are we safe from this problem? Jesus cuts off this argument with the Pharisees. I mean, he really wants no part of it. Uh, so he, he says those few words, and then he moves on. And sometimes we need to move on. There's some arguments that can't go on forever that we just need to, to draw to a conclusion. And so let's bring up our map again. We see that he and his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. And, and here, that's vague, but when we get down to verse 22, what we see is they go to Bethsaida, which on our map is kind of to the north and east. So it's, it's close to the Decapolis, but it's north of the, of the Decapolis, uh, as you can see on our map. So they put a healthy distance between themselves and the Pharisees that keep wanting to fight with Jesus. In the course of this journey to Bethsaida, Jesus issues a strong caution to them, which is important. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of of Herod. Okay. Now, Matthew doesn't include the Herod part, just the Pharisee part, uh, but I think both of them are pertinent because um, it's also about rulers and, of course, Mark, written to uh, people who are in Rome, are dealing with a ruler who is opposing uh, Christianity. So that's why he includes it where most likely Matthew does not include it. So, Levin. That's not something that we usually talk about, leaven. Leaven was, okay, before, the, before you could go to the store and buy little packets of yeast, which you can't go to the store and buy right now, <laughs> because they are wiped out. <laughs> At least, if, if you find leaven, uh, sorry, yeast, call Amy and let her know, because we're wanting some yeast, all right? Uh, but leaven was for a world that did not have grocery stores, uh, it was the leftover dough from the previous batch that you then worked into the new batch of dough, okay? Because it contained the yeast, so you 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 know you worked it into it, so that then that dough began to rise too. We deviated as a family from our normal Saturday morning breakfast of bacon and waffles yesterday. Don't worry, we still had bacon. Okay, I wasn't worried because we still had bacon. Uh, but Amy had, had bought these uh, butter braids. And you know, Saturday night she placed them on the high counter so the dog wouldn't uh, hopefully get to them and eat them. Um, and overnight they rose. They were much bigger in the morning than they were when I went to bed, albeit late. Leaven, essentially taking place. That's what he's talking about. Leaven is used metaphorically in Scripture at times. Um, this idea of a little leaven spreads through the whole. And that can be used positively, and it can also be used negatively. It's used positively of the kingdom, but it's, it also can be used negatively of sin. And in this, is, in this case, it's a negative, because he's warning them 
about this leaven, this leaven of the Pharisees, this leaven of Herod. He does not want the disciples to be infected by the same problem that those guys have, those groups have. Both the Pharisees and Herod rejected the kingdom of Jesus, but for very different reasons. The Pharisees were locked into their theological reasons. Okay? Uh, Jesus was seen as a kind of a threat to their uh, religious power, but mostly they thought he was teaching a different way of salvation. And it was a different way of salvation. What they didn't get was that they were the ones who had departed from the Old Testament and not Jesus. Okay? Herod was afraid that Jesus would replace him. And so his fears are entirely political, not partially political. But in both cases, it's unbelief. Just taking different forms with different concerns. Those disciples, man, they were right on top of that. No, they missed the whole point. Sounds like many households. <laughs> you know, there, there are those days when, when you're just in sync and you can finish each other's sentences. And then there's the other days when you're talking different languages to each other. Okay? Uh, most of you married couples should understand this, right? There's just days where it's just like completely missing each other. Even the newlyweds, right? <laughs> This is, this is one of those days, so to speak, but it's not just coincidental, so to speak. They began discussing the fact that they had no bread. Uh, Jesus is going to be un understandably annoyed by this. They think Jesus is talking physically, or, or, or Jesus is speaking literally, and, and is addressing the fact that they have no bread. They forgot the food, most likely, on the shore when they left in a rush. You know, they, they had arrived at uh, Magdala. They had likely unloaded the boat, and a word soon spread, and here come the Pharisees, and now comes the argument, and Jesus says, let's go, guys, and they rush off uh, into the boat, and they most likely left a lot of those leftovers that they had dragged across the sea already. And so now, here they are talking about the fact that they left it all but one loaf on the stupid shore, and who's, most likely they're arguing about whose fault it was. Which one of you guys did this? Because obviously it wasn't me. Who was responsible for the bread? That's what they're arguing about, but not what Jesus is. And for some reason, my mind keeps going back to Allen Iverson. If any, any of you remember Allen Iverson, he was a basketball player, and he was known for leaving everything on the court. And he was, uh, in his peak, he was one of the best players, even though he was the, one of the shortest players in the league at the time, and took all kinds of physical abuse. And there was one point in his career in Philadelphia where they were asking him whether or not he was, he was actually practicing. And so he goes on a rant. Practice? We're talking about practice. You know, here's a guy who's one of the best players in the league, and they're worried about whether or not he's practicing. And, you know, Jesus probably is going, bread? You're worried about bread? Why are you worried about bread? And yet they're worried about 
bread. They're caught up in the mundane. They're caught up in the ordinary. They're forgetting who's sitting in the boat with them. It's easy for us in the midst of life with its challenges to lose sight of what really matters, the kingdom. It's easy for us to focus on the bread and to miss the bread of life. And so Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Okay. So I love about Jesus. He often addresses the elephant in the room or the elephant in the boat, uh, as the case may be. And he's admonishing them for this. He probably sighed, even though Mark doesn't record it, because this is exasperating, because they're completely missing the point. He says, and he uses two different words that kind of convey the same idea of perception and understanding. They lacked understanding, and it has that idea of putting pieces together. And so when you understand a concept, you're able to mentally put the pieces of the concept together. You know, I'll, I'll use the illustration of geometry. I spent the first quarter in high school in geometry class not being able to put those pieces together, and then one day it clicked, and geometry made sense. And, and even though it hasn't for Lydia yet, it's all... <laughs> I have faith that one day it's going to click, Lydia, and you're going to understand geometry. But that was their problem. Not geometry, but they, the pieces weren't fitting in their heads. They weren't able to mentally put them together in their minds. And this gets back to the point that unbelief affects our minds. It affects our capacity to think, our capacity to put things together. Paul talks about this in Romans 1 and dealing with the reality of sin is though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sin and unbelief make you stupid. All of us, stupid. That's the point. Their unbelief was functioning in such a way that they couldn't see what should have been obvious at that point in time. What happens is we begin in our brains to tune out God while we simultaneously tune up the noise. Okay? So the truth gets lost in all of the hubbub or the noise of life in the present. And it's to this that Jesus continues. I mean, he's not done. It, it, I feel like a parent listening to, or, you know, like I'm listening to a parent listening to Jesus here. Are your hearts hardened? He wants to know if they are like Pharaoh and the Pharisees, who, having heard the truth, refused to believe the truth. I experience this often when I engage people on anything having to do with COVID-19. Not any time, but often enough. You, 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 get, you get that sense that you're talking past each other. That people are um, claiming you're saying things that you're not saying. Okay? 
And so it almost makes me want to move to a desert island all by myself. Okay, I'll bring Amy. I'll bring the kids. Um, but I, I w sometimes I wish I was independently wealthy and could do that because um, discussing various topics, people aren't putting things together in their heads. Their idols are making them stupid. Just like my idols can at times make me stupid. But the point is that they're no longer listening to God. They're no longer fearing the Lord. They're no longer doing what he says, which is what you get um, when it starts talking about the hardened heart in the early parts of Exodus. It's a, it's a person who doesn't take God at his word. It's a person who doesn't fear the Lord and it's, therefore doesn't do what God says. A person who fig, thinks they have to figure it out on their own, as most teenagers are wont to do, and sometimes adults as well. So unbelief tunes out the voice of Jesus. Or I guess the more directly answer my question, yes. <laughs> It's not limited to the Pharisees. Disciples can experience unbelief too. Is there a way out of this mess? Because it's a wearisome mess. Remember, there's more at stake here than dinner. Jesus asks them if they have eyes to see, probably referring to the miracles he's been doing, as well as ears to hear the things he's been teaching them this entire time. He's wondering, don't you get it yet? And then he says specifically, do you remember? It is a problem of what they choose to remember or bring to mind. That's where the messiness was. They're bringing the wrong things to mind as opposed to the right things to mind. And so Jesus gets specific. He asks them about the feeding of the 5,000. How many baskets of leftovers did we take? Twelve. Ask them about the feeding of the 4,000. How many baskets of leftovers did we pick up? Seven. You can almost probably hear like a sheepish child. Seven. <laughs> Although there's one of my kids who almost always refuses to answer me because they're just lost in it, you know. And that's when I lose my mind. Okay. They're suffering from what Sinclair Ferguson calls spiritual amnesia. They're forgetting spiritual realities that are particularly pertinent to this problem. They don't have to worry about how much bread is in the boat because they have Jesus in the boat. They're never going to starve because they have Jesus. Now, spiritual amnesia amongst disciples, okay, not the Pharisees, these disciples, excluding Judas, still have their union with Christ, but what they miss out on is their 
communion or fellowship with Christ. And so uh, when you are not putting the pieces together in the midst of a particular crisis that you're experiencing, you're still united to Jesus. You're still saved from your sins. But part of what's going on is you're not enjoying that salvation. You're not enjoying fellowship with Jesus because you're focused on your sin, uh, not on your sin, but on the problem instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus. Okay? This is a real problem that Christians experience. And it doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means they're still struggling to be more mature. But it is a spiritual problem. They're, they're like Israel in the wilderness. Okay? You'll, if, if you uh, go to Facebook on our page and go to you know the Tea with Steve, although one night it was Nightcap with Steve because it was late at night, um, You'll see a lot of this in this, the stuff on Exodus that we're, I'm talking about. And, and we find it. They said to Moses, in, in Exodus 14, both of these are from Exodus 14, verse 11, is it, not, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? These are people who just saw God bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians to set them free, and they think that God has brought them into into the wilderness to die? They have spiritual amnesia. Later, in verse 31, Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, that is... okay. What's right between those two verses? The Red Sea. They kept needing to see God deliver them. And uh, prior to verse 31, they did. And so as a result, they feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord, at least for a little while. Okay, And in his servant Moses, at least until the next time they ran out of water, and then they wanted to stone him again. Okay, But that's the problem. That's the struggle that wearies us. Our spiritual amnesia produced by the remnant of unbelief within our hearts. Discipleship is in part helping people to begin to tune out the noise and tune up the voice of Jesus. One of the gifts I got this past year, uh, thanks to a gift card from the congregation uh, during pastor appreciation, I got noise-canceling headphones. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. It's, it's as if we have noise-canceling headphones that tune out the traffic noise, because a lot of times when I'm listening to my music, it's on, if I'm taking a walk outside, I hear the cars, especially when I'm on Cortero, you know, drowns out my guitars. Don't like that. Well, now I got my, my noise-canceling headphones. I'm walking on Cortero, and I'm really not bothered. I got my tunes, and I'm good, as long as I'm keeping my eyes open so I'm not twisting an ankle or stepping on a snake. So discipleship is really about listening to the voice of Jesus and learning to tune out the noise of life. Another way of putting it is 
Discipleship is learning to put the truth together with your present problems so that you trust. It's remembering that, hey, yeah, that whole Red Sea thing, we're with the God who did that. He can provide us water. He can provide us food. He can deliver us from the next enemy that comes down the road. Beginning to see the fact that you're saved is relevant to your current problem. That the God who sent his son to the cross to bear your sins is also going to be present in the midst of your problem. Whether it is you don't have enough money, whether it is you're worried about work, all the stuff with COVID-19, all of these things. There's loved ones you care about and all of that. Jesus can be trusted with all of that. Put it together. Put that puzzle together. And as we think about Desert Springs... Uh, there's this group of us that have been meeting for uh, most of this year, uh, once a month, and we're doing a book called The Vine Project that's talking about uh, developing a culture of discipleship. And um, when I get back from vacation, if you've got the, the email and read to the bottom of it, you'll, you'll see I'm going to start preaching some of the principles that we're talking about there. But one of the things that they keep talking about is this um, transformative learning center. And so uh, the, the church uh, needs to think of itself as a transformative learning center, not a learning center. Okay? We do communicate doctrine, but that's not all we communicate. We want people to be transformed by that doctrine so that they are transformed in how they live. Okay? Essentially... It gets back to Romans 12. No longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so when we think about what we communicate, uh, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's in what we currently call Sunday school, but, but Steve Boyer saying Sunday at 9 sounds better. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't like the idea of school because school doesn't necessarily in, in, engage that idea of transformative. Okay? And I want that to be how we're thinking, that we should be transformed as a body as well as individuals. And that's what this text is getting at. They're not being transformed because they're not putting the pieces together. And we want to help people put the pieces together. This is our aspiration, not where we are at this point. So if I was to answer this question, uh, is there a way out of this mess? I would say, remember who Jesus is when life is hard. In other words, in a sense, just get back to the gospel. Uh, Not that you need to be saved again, but that's the God who's going to be present with you in your trouble. That's the God who's proven himself to you in that past trouble, 
has proven his power, has proven his mercy, has proven his love, has proven his care. So can't you entrust him with this current problem? Because it's so much smaller than that one. Well, sighs arise when kids lose sight of the bigger picture and our agenda as parents gets tanked. Sighs arise when parents see kids who don't seem to get that bigger picture. So there's sighs all around, all through the house. Everyone is sighing, even the mouse. I don't know why I had a Dr. Seuss moment, but I did. (laughs) Here we see Jesus sighing in response to the unbelief of the Pharisees. Jesus is concerned that his disciples don't fall into the same trap of unbelief. Jesus recognizes that it, it shows up when we place the priorities of the present above the priorities of Jesus and his kingdom. We become, as Jeremiah Burroughs said, earthly-minded. And so we need to remember God's salvation in Christ and put that together with our present problem. Isn't that God who saved us able to deal with our current fears and worries and afflictions? So don't wear yourself out with them, but really cast those burdens upon him. And so if I was to wrap this thing up, which I am, remember who Jesus is and tune back into his voice that we find in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, um, we are grateful for such a great salvation, but we confess that we often lose sight of that great salvation under what seems to be the heavy burden of the present and the needs that we experience and the the fears that we have. We're no better than those disciples in a boat. We struggle. And we need your help to remember. We need your help in bringing it to our minds so that we're able to put the pieces back together. And help us to remind each other to do that. That is part of the means that you've given us. Father, please help us to help each other. To put those pieces back together. So that we can rest in Jesus, the author of our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.